Okay, this is the final lecture of the series and it's going to finish appropriately enough by looking at the conclusion of book one of the treatise. That's treatise 147. But I personally think that that conclusion is a bit unsatisfactory and I think Hume thought it was too. So what I'm also going to do is go back over some stuff that we've previously seen but not covered in the lectures, some, ha some of the stuff that I gave you on the handouts at the time, on induction and causation, linked to what Hume says in the inquiry concerning human understanding. And I'm going to suggest that in his later writings, Hume found a more satisfactory resolution to the problem of scepticism. So I think if we look at the conclusion of book one of the treatise, we see a work in progress. And I think Hume resolved that later on. And there's a lot of parallels and continuities between the two, uh, but he ends up with a much smoother position in his mature writings. So, treatise 147, conclusion of this book. Now, <clears throat> In the same sort of way as we saw in 142, there is a dynamic quality to 147, though, though much more so. We see Hume apparently changing his mind, going backwards and forwards from optimism to scepticism, back to optimism, and getting clear on what exactly he thinks, or what, whether he has uh, a satisfactory, stable point of view, is very difficult. So here's a, a, a brief sort of roadmap of some of what, what's happening in that, that section. Uh, he said that most of our mental processes have been revealed as dependent on the imagination. Uh, it's dependent on the vivacity of ideas. So we get a, a very strong statement of that in the third paragraph. He mentions that in 144 of the treatise, he's found a manifest contradiction between our causal reasoning and the continued existence of matter. That's the, the, uh, the section of the modern philosophy. So he puts a footnote back to that. The analysis of causation shows our thoughts about uh, causal necessity to be deeply confused, and he refers back to that. So the imagination is responsible for all of our beliefs. He's shown from his, this goes right back to his discussion uh, on induction, he's shown that reason is incapable of justifying belief in the, in the unobserved, based on the observed, uh, that we're dependent on the imagination, on this, the, this trick of the imagination whereby when we've see a, uh, seen an A followed by B again and again, we see an A, the idea of a B is enlivened so that we expect that a B will occur. All of our beliefs in the unobserved are depend dependent on that quality of the imagination. And we've seen that the imagination also plays a large role elsewhere, often leading us apparently into error. How far should we allow ourselves to be led by the imagination? Well, Hume says, if we assent to every trivial suggestion of the fancy, the fancy here is just another name for the imagination, beside that these suggestions are often contrary to each other, they lead us into such errors, absurdities and obscurities that we must at last become ashamed of our credulity. And remember, Hume has criticized the imagination. In 143, the discussion of the ancient philosophers, he was criticizing them for being led astray by it, being too led by whatever their fancy happens to suggest to them. So the natural response is to reject the imagination as a guide. It's too unreliable. But if we resolve to reject all trivial suggestions of the fancy, Hume says, we'll have no answer to the radical scepticism of 141. Remember, the scepticism of 141, of scepticism with regard to reason, what Hume argued there was that if we think rationally about our reasonings, for example, in mathematics, we will, we will realize that we sometimes make errors. That introduces an element of doubt. Then if we think about our judgment about our capacity to make errors, we'll realize that we can go wrong there as well, and that adds an extra element of doubt. 
And then we can go wrong about that judgment too, and that adds an extra element of doubt. And according to Hume, if we follow this through logically, ultimately we'll end up believing nothing at all. What saves us from that scepticism, the radical scepticism with regard to reason of 141? According to Hume, the only thing that saves us is this trivial quality of the imagination whereby we're not able to follow the reasoning that far. We lose a grip on it. We stop following it and therefore we're saved from scepticism. So now Hume, in, in, in uh, 14477, he refers back to this and says it might be tempting to reject all these trivial suggestions of the fancy, but if we do, we've had it. We've got no, nothing to defend us from this radical scepticism. So it seems that we have no choice left but betwixt a false reason and none at all. For my part, I know not what, I, what ought to be done in the present case. I can only observe what is commonly done, which is that this difficulty is seldom or never thought of. Very refined reflections have little or no influence upon us. That's what he was appealing to in 141, to save us from the scepticism. The scepticism, the reasoning gets so refined, we lose a grip on it, it stops having any effect. And yet we do not and cannot establish it for a rule that they ought not to have any influence, which implies a manifest contradiction. But what have I here said, that reflections very refined and metaphysical have little or no influence upon us? I've got a famous passage. Actually, all these refined reasonings have had a very profound effect on me, says Hume. The intense view of these manifold contradictions and imperfections in human reason has so wrought upon me and heated my brain that I'm ready to reject all belief and reasoning and can look upon no opinion even as more probable or likely than another. Where am I or what? From what causes do I derive my existence and to what condition shall I return? And he goes on with a few more questions of that kind. I am confounded with all these questions and begin to fancy myself in the most deplorable condition imaginable, environed with the deepest darkness. So you can see Hume is quickly getting rather deep into a sceptical pit, or so it looks like. Uh, he's reflecting on the fact that the imagination is terrifically unreliable. On the other hand, if we reject these trivial qualities of the imagination, it looks like we've got no defense from skepticism. Uh, what saves us from skepticism is being able to ignore refined reasoning. But surely we don't want to ignore all refined reasoning because otherwise all science is out the window. And here, anyway, Hume is saying this refined reasoning has a very profound effect on the way he's thinking. Most fortunately, it happens that since reason is incapable of dispelling these clouds, nature herself suffices to that purpose and cures me of this philosophical melancholy and delirium. Very famous passage here. I dine, I play a game of backgammon, I converse, and am merry with my friends, and afterwards these speculations appear so cold and strained and ridiculous that I cannot find it in my heart to enter into them any farther. And again, very similar to what we get at the end of Treatise 142. Carelessness and inattention alone seem to be able to afford us any remedy. Now, this isn't terribly satisfactory, is it, really? I mean, Hume's gone through all these sceptical concerns. I mean, he's, he's written this book, a large chunk of which is de devoted to sceptical worries. And here he is saying, oh, well, let's just ignore them. Not a very satisfactory position for a philosopher to be in. Now, somehow, Hume is going to try to get out of this by appealing to nature. At the moment where we are is nature just saves us from thinking about it at all. We just stop worrying about it. We go and dine or play a game of backgammon, maybe drink a glass of wine, just forget about the scepticism. But now what we seem to get is something like an attempt to give a rational response, something that isn't just a matter of forgetting about the problems. Um, it's a very debated question whether Hume actually succeeds in giving that. Here is a gesture towards that. 
when I dine, play a game of backgammon and so on, nature imposes on me. I find I just have beliefs whether reason leads me to them or not. Here then I find myself absolutely and necessarily determined to live and talk and act like other people in the common affairs of life. I may, nay I must, yield to the current of nature in submitting to my senses and understanding. I can't help believing that there are physical objects there when I see them. So I, I yield to nature in following my senses and my understanding too, my reason. When I reason inductively, I find I just can't help believing when I see an A that a B will follow. I can't help yielding to my understanding. And in this blind submission, I show most perfectly my sceptical disposition and principles. Hang on a minute. Isn't that a little bit odd? He shows his sceptical disposition in yielding to his inclination to reason. Well, maybe. Does it follow that I must strive against the current of nature and that I must torture my brain with subtleties and sophistries? Under what obligation do I lie of making such an abuse of time? Not absolutely clear what, Hume, what line of thought Hume is following here. At least I don't find it very clear. Um, I think if you go and read section 12 of the inquiry, you can see that as a development of something like this line of thought. Um, there you get a slightly different position where Hume is saying, it's up to the sceptic to give me a reason for stopping doing what I'm doing. I have no reason not to continue reasoning in the normal way, believing in the normal way, unless the sceptic gives me a reason to do so. But here in the treatise, Hume himself has given a reason not to do so, uh, in 141, and that is the root of the problem. Hume's scepticism is not just one that says we have no independent ground for doing what we're doing. He's actually argued that there's some kind of inconsistency or irrationality in thinking what we do. If we are philosophers, it ought only to be upon sceptical principles and from an inclination which we feel to the employing ourselves after that manner. Where reason is lively and mixes itself with some propensity, it ought to be assented to. Where it does not, it never can have any title to act upon us. So that, um, those two sentences that I've put in, in highlight there, they're referred to by Don Garrett as the title principle. And Don sees this as giving some resolution to the scepticism. Uh, Hume's got this problem. He wants to assent to some things that the imagination sent, uh, 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 suggests to him, but not others. He doesn't want to be led into the mad credulity where we believe any old trivial suggestion of the imagination. On the other hand, he wants to have a warrant for going along with the imagination in, for example, inductive beliefs. Where's the difference? How can you choose amongst these? Well, where reason is lively and mixes itself with some propensity, let's go with that. And Hume seems to be saying he has such a propensity. I cannot forbear having a curiosity to be acquainted with the principles of moral good and evil, the nature and foundation of government, and the cause of those several passions and inclinations which actuate and govern me. Uh, and notice here, he's referring to morality, he's referring to the passions. And this is the final section, remember, the final section of book one, and he's shortly about to embark on book two on the passions, followed later by book three of morals. And at the time when he first published the treatise, he was also anticipating going on and producing further work on uh, political theory. In the end, that came out in the essays, but he didn't actually go on to a fourth book of the treatise. But it looks here as though we have a passage which is, as it were, justifying the transition, or attempting to. He's saying, we've got all this scepticism, the imagination is inconsistent, we can't follow it all the time, when shall we follow it? Well, we'll follow it when it's lively and mixes itself with some propensity, when I've got a propensity to do something, why shouldn't I? And here I have a propensity to investigate these things because I'm curious. Curiosity 
is an appropriate propensity, so I'm going to follow the imagination there. And again, this doesn't really seem terribly satisfactory in the light of all the sceptical arguments that Hume has given. Hume's actually argued that, fo that following our reason is actually all the way is going to lead to contradictions. Um, I suppose I am curious. I'm curious to find out about these things. How does that actually help? I mean, if I'm curious, I want to know the truth. But Hume hasn't given me any reason for supposing that following my imagination will lead to truth. In fact, he's given reason for supposing it won't, or that it's very unlikely to. So it's not clear that an appeal to curiosity actually helps. Well, moreover, lively and mixes itself with some propensity. Hmm. Superstitious beliefs don't do that, don't they? They're very lively. They mix themselves with the propensity. Lots of people have the propensity to believe in superstitious things and do so in a very lively way. Okay, so according to Hume's title principle, we ought to follow the imagination when it leads us in the direction of superstition. For many people, that will be a lot more lively than reason. Well, Hume seems to be aware of this. He doesn't actually draw attention to this. He doesn't say, actually, what I've just said could just as well lead me in the direction of superstition. But what he does say is, we ought to deliberate concerning the choice of our guide and ought to prefer that which is safest and most agreeable. And in this respect, I make bold to recommend philosophy and give it the preference to superstition of every kind. So he seems to be aware that there is um, a bit of a lacuna in his argument here. But all this looks a bit unconvincing. Hume has said that philosophy is safer than superstition. How do you know? How do you know that philosophy is going to be safer than superstition? Unless you can claim to have some rational belief about the unobserved, you can't know that one method of reasoning is going to be safer or more agreeable than another. It may have been safer and agreeable up till now. What reason is that for supposing it will be safer and agreeable in the future? And after all, he's argued that philosophy contradicts it, him, itself. So, even, even less reason for thinking that he can be confident about where it's going to lead. We get this observation that the errors in religion are dangerous, those in philosophy only ridiculous. That doesn't look like a very wholehearted endorsement of philosophy, does it? So you can see Hume is struggling. He's trying to find a way of justifying philosophy over superstition. But I actually think he's not got one. Um, but again, this is controversial. You find a lot of disagreement amongst Hume scholars. Uh, several scholars have written about section 147, um, for example, Don Garrett, Annette Bayer, Peter Kale. Um, it, it's actually quite a, a highly discussed section these days. And some scholars will take, uh, take it to be a very, very carefully choreographed section in which everything is under control and Hume knows exactly where he's going and if you follow it through, it just leads to a, a nice conclusion which paves the way for books two and three. Personally, I don't believe it. I think Hume is struggling. But read it for yourself. Read these other uh, people and see what you think. And say, so Don Garrett's book uh, is a particularly good book on Hume on most topics. And uh, he is very well known for presenting the title principle as a supposedly adequate solution to the problem. What I'm going to do is point to a different solution, which I think Hume is groping towards in the treatise and actually comes out much more clearly in the inquiry. In the treatise, what we see is an ambiguity in the notion of the imagination. There are plenty of traces of it there. It can be very confusing when you read the treatise, um, but I think if we focus on this, it will help to understand what might be going on. Okay, so here's the problem that Hume addresses when he talks about the ancient philosophers. Remember, the ancient philosophers 
follow all sorts of trivial propensities of the imagination. I mean, children, for example, if they fall and hurt themselves against a stone, they may hit the stone and say, you naughty stone, you hurt me. They're attributing desires and intentions to inanimate objects. Well, that's just what the ancient philosophers do. The ancient philosophers, the Aristotelians, they, they say stones fall because they're striving to reach the centre of the universe and stars go round in circles because they're striving to imitate God. God's perfection, that is, not God going round in circles. So these philosophers, Hume is saying, are being drawn by the imagination and instead of being critical about it, they're just going with it. Well, poets do that too. Poets you can excuse, that's their job. Children you can excuse, they're just children. Ancient philosophers, huh, they ought to know better. But Hume himself, of course, when he discusses induction, is very insistent that it's the imagination that leads us to reason inductively. And as we've seen, Hume thinks that inductive reasoning, causal reasoning, is the only rational basis we can have for any belief about the unobserved. So here Hume is being very positive about the imagination. He's saying the imagination leads us to make this inference. This is the only kind of inference we've got that can lead us from observed to unobserved. So he's got a problem. He's criticizing the imagination when the ancient philosophers appeal to it. He seems to be endorsing the imagination when he appeals to it in the account of induction. Well, likewise, in 141, uh, we see that he, he appeals to the imagination. But here, unlike in the case of induction, he's appealing to what he calls a trivial operation of the imagination. And he seems to want to draw a distinction here, but he's prevented by do, from doing so precisely by the fact that in 141 he needs to appeal to the trivial. So let's go back to, this is a slide from lecture six, where I alluded to his criticism of the Aristotelians, and I pointed out that there he distinguishes between two kinds of imaginative principles. And here is the passage. We didn't actually uh, look at this in detail in lecture six, but let's read it through now. So rem remember the, the problem that he's dealing with, the ancient philosophers rely on the imagination, and here I am criticizing them for doing so. But you say, you yourself, Hume, rely on the imagination when you discuss induction. In order to justify myself, I must distinguish in the imagination betwixt the principles which are permanent, irresistible, and universal, such as the customary transition from causes to effects and from effects to causes, and the principles which are changeable, weak, and irregular, such as those I have just now taken notice of. The former are the foundation of all our thoughts and actions, so that upon their removal, human nature must immediately perish and go to ruin. The latter are neither unavoidable to mankind nor necessary, or so much as useful in the conduct of life, but on the contrary are observed only to take place in weak minds, and being opposite to the other principles of conduct and reasoning, may easily be subverted by a due contrast and opposition. For this reason, the former are received by philosophy and the latter rejected. So he's drawing a distinction between two different kinds of principles of the imagination. The permanent, general, irresistible uh, principles, induction, causal reasoning, and the others, the ones that are, uh, what does he say, changeable, weak, irregular, undisciplined. And he's saying that without the former, uh, human nature would perish and go to ruin. But the latter tend not to do us any good. They lead us into all sorts of inconsistent reasonings and so forth. Now, one question you might ask here is, how can Hume be so sure of this? Given Hume's own principles about induction, you might think, how can he be so confident that giving up reasoning inductively will result in ruin? 
Now, I think the answer here probably is going to be lie in the word universal. Hume actually thinks that, in fact, we do all reason inductively most of the time. Uh, to take an example of his, when you leave this lecture, you'll walk out the door, not the window. Why? Because you believe, don't you, that falling from great heights from windows hurts. You do believe that. You may have no reason to believe it if you're a skeptic, but you do believe it all the same. Now, if Hume's right that everybody, even the ancient philosophers, even the skeptics, all in fact reason inductively, then people will in fact believe, whether justified or not, that stopping reasoning in that way will lead to disaster. If we stop eating food that has nourished us in the past, if we start eating food that we know that in the past has seemed to be poison, if we start doing things that in the past we've seen damage others, if we stop doing things that we've seen to be beneficial, we all believe, don't we, that, we will, that thing, things will go badly. So if, if in fact we all accept those principles, the permanent, irresistible, universal principles of human nature, even if they can't be given any further justification, then Hume hasn't actually got an opponent. I mean, nobody is saying to Hume, uh, stop doing these things. So you can see the sketch here of some kind of reply. We've got here that the other principles of conduct and reasoning can easily be subverted by a due contrast and opposition. How does that work? What's this due contrast and opposition? Well, here's what I think Hume might have in mind. Suppose you get somebody who's got superstitious beliefs. They believe they can see the future by examining tea leaves or something like that, or you know, sacrificing a cock and cutting it open and, and seeing the bird's entrails. They've got some kind of superstitious way of telling the future or astrology. Well, test it. Try it out. See if it works. Do the statistics on it. What will you find? Well, you will in practice find it doesn't work. What will happen then when it doesn't work? Well, people who face up to that, who actually fa face the fact that, look, you've predicted this thing you know, ten times, and it only came off once. What will happen? Well, there you get the due contrast and opposition. You get an opposition between the established principles of the imagination, that is, the things that lead us to expect that the future will resemble the past, and the superstitious belief. If the superstitious belief actually doesn't work, and you test it systematically, and you find it doesn't work, then you will give up the superstitious belief. It's defeated. Because we do, in fact, reason inductively. If that's true, if we do, in fact, do it, even the skeptic does it, even the ancient philosopher does it, and so on, that itself can be harnessed against the other more frivolous imaginative principles. And I think that's what Hume is getting at. Uh, we see it perhaps most clearly, actually, in the, in the or one of the uh, areas where it's seen most clearly, I think, is in the discussion of miracles in the inquiry, where Hume appeals to induction, as it were, against um, what he considers an irrational way of reasoning and expects his opponent to... Um, to be impressed by the same kind of thought. Okay, so this dis distinction between two different kinds of principles of the imagination also informs a footnote. This footnote was inserted into the treatise while it was going through the press, right? Some copies of Treatise Book 1 have this in, some don't. It was printed on a cancel sheet to be stuck inside the treatise to replace the previous sheet. So, as our ascent to all probable reasonings, all inductive reasonings, okay, is founded on the vivacity of ideas, it resembles many of those whimsies and prejudices which are rejected under the opprobrious character of being the offspring of the imagination. Exactly the same point he's making about the ancient philosophers, right? He criticizes the ancient philosophers for being impressed by all sorts of whimsical imaginative thoughts, but induction itself is based on the imagination. By this expression, it appears that the word imagination is commonly used in two different senses. And in the following reasonings, I have often fallen into this ambiguity. So here is Hume acknowledging at the very you know, 59th minute of the 11th hour 
that he's actually been guilty of an ambiguity in the notion of the imagination. Uh, incidentally, there's another version of that footnote, a shorter version that was in book two, and basically his instruction was to beef it up and put it into book one. Now, I think that where the, that footnote really belongs, I can't prove it, the, uh, the evidence is in the wording, right? I mean, look, look at that. Uh, rejected under the opprobrious character of being the offspring of the imagination, right? That's from the footnote. And what do we get here? Merely the offspring of the imagination. This is the end of a paragraph earlier in the section. All this and every that, sorry, that should say everything else which I believe are nothing but ideas, though by their force and settled order arising from custom and the relation of cause and effect, they distinguish themselves from being the other ideas which are merely the offspring of the imagination. These are the only two places in Hume's entire writings, either letters or, or, or uh, publications, where the phrase offspring of the imagination comes. Um, it seems to me pretty evident that the distinction Hume is alluding to here is exactly the same one as in the footnote, and that is exactly the same one as in 1441. So we've got quite a consistent distinction that Hume is trying to draw here. He's got a general notion of the imagination, and that there are two different kinds of principles within the imagination. One of them is settled and general and universal and established and reasonable. That's the things that lead us to reason inductively. And the others are rejected under the opprobrious character of being the offspring of the imagination. So that's the, the negative sense of the imagination, or the, the, in that sense, the imagination is those principles that aren't general and established. And it seems that Hume is hankering after justifying one of them, but not the other, drawing a distinction between them. Okay, so now let's move to the inquiry and look back at some of the stuff that we didn't cover in earlier lectures, though it was on the handout. So what you'll find here is I'm, I'm going to be reproducing some of the material that, that some of you may already have looked at, but we've not actually covered in lectures, and I'm going to be tying it together, and I hope uh, making a, a, a coherent package of, of Hume's mature view. So in the inquiry, we don't get one for one. It disappears. No longer does he have a species of scepticism that can only be met by appealing to trivial qualities of the imagination. That is the tendency of the imagination not to be able to follow a complex argument. That goes. Scepticism about personal identity, that disappears. Well, we've seen that he didn't seem to be happy with his view on personal identity. I find it very odd, incidentally, the, the prominence of discussions of personal identity in Hume. You know, lots and lots of books on Hume, and they all have a chapter on personal identity. Well, he believed that for a full 21 months. <laughs> we don't know what he thought beyond that period. And skepticism about the external world, that, that, that does appear, but it's very much muted in section 12, part 1. And I think the inquiry can be read as providing some defence of what the treatise called the established properties of the imagination. Um, I'm not going to actually be going in detail through section 12 of the inquiry, uh, but I'll be mentioning at the end something that you can read that will make very explicit uh, how this all works. What I want to do is go back to the earlier lectures where we were looking at induction and causation these are topics which are very much retained in the inquiry, and I want to show how we can view Hume's approach to them as very positive and non-sceptical. Okay. So we saw that Hume in the treatise refers to reason as our cognitive faculty. Now think about this. If reason is our cognitive faculty... If reason is the faculty by which we discover truth and falsehood, then inductive inference is part of reason, right? It must be. After all, that is one of our main means of discovering truth and falsehood. In fact, it's the only means of discovering truth and falsehood beyond 
the memory and senses. And as we saw in discussing induction, um, Hume continues to treat induction as an operation of reason when he goes on in the treatise to discuss, for example, the external world and morality. So Hume does seem pretty consistently right the way through to think of induction as an operation of reason. Okay, now think about those two different senses of the imagination. We've seen various passages in which Hume is drawing a distinction between two different senses of the imagination. You've got imaginative principles which are uh, general and established and respectable. And it seems pretty clear, if you look at those quotations that I've given you, it's absolutely clear that those that arise from custom and settled order and that sort of thing, they are amongst the established principles. And those are dignified with being called operations of reason. Right? The famous footnote, uh, the footnote I, I mentioned that went into the treatise as it was going through the press, Hume is saying that actually we, will, we can commonly refer to those established principles of the imagination that are responsible for our probable reasoning, we can refer to those as part of reason. So it's only the, the, um, the whimsies and prejudices area of, in, of imagination which in that sense we call the imagination. The more settled principles of the imagination, let's refer to those as reason. And that fits entirely with seeing reason as our cognitive faculty. So now what I want to do is explain how that is compatible with what Hume says about induction. So, we're taking Hume as his word. By reason, he means our cognitive powers, the powers by which we discover truth and falsehood. And here we've got this passage, which we've seen before, it's common for philosophers dis to distinguish the kinds of evidence into intuitive, demonstrative, sensible, and moral. Sensible meaning sensory, moral meaning probable reasoning. So those are our cognitive powers, or they're generally accepted to be such. You could add memory, but memory is kind of taken for granted when you're reasoning inductively. So Hume's argument, the famous argument from 136 of the treatise and section 4 of the inquiry, shows that none of those can provide a basis for claiming to discern the ongoing truth of the uniformity principle. So when we reason from past to future, we're taking for granted the uniformity of nature, and we have n we, none of our cognitive faculties can give us any access to that uniformity principle. We take it for granted. We, as it were, read it into the world rather than reading it off the world. That does not imply that induction is not reasonable. It doesn't imply that induction ceases to be an operation of reason. Well, how is it then, how can it be that induction is part of reason but not founded on reason? How is that supposed to work? Well, what I suggest that Hume is doing here, in his discussion of induction, and incidentally in his discussion of the external world to some extent, what he's doing is identifying the implicit steps that are involved in one of our cognitive operations. He's identifying the underlying step. Oh look, in every inference of this kind, there is a step taken which involves extrapolating from observed to unobserved. What's that based on? What's that step based on? What kind of step is it? Is it a reason-like step? Does it involve cognizing something, becoming aware of something, reading something of the, off the world? Or is it, on the other hand, an imaginative-type step? What do you mean by that, Hume? Do you mean whimsies and prejudices? No, 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 I don't mean whimsies and prejudices. When I say an imaginative step, I mean it involves some kind of mental synthesis, some reading into the world rather than reading off the world. So when Hume says that induction is founded on the imagination, he emphatically doesn't want to say that it's founded on a whimsy. He's simply saying that it's a constructive operation of the mind uh, rather than a cognitive one. Now, 
When Hume does this kind of investigation, he tends to focus on one particular step. As we've seen in the case of induction, it's the uniformity principle. In the case of the external world, it's the step that takes us from interrupted sense impressions to our assurance of the continued and distinct existence of body. And when he says, when he concludes that the step is an imagination-like step rather than a reason-like step, as I say, constructive rather than cognitive, he says it's due to the imagination. And none of that conflicts with the operation concerned being located within, as it were, our, the, uh, the cognitive part of our nature uh, rather than the fanciful side. So, if we interpret Hume's argument concerning induction like that, this is the conclusion we get. Our cognitive process of inductive inference, it is a cognitive process, it's a process by which we come to know truth and falsehood, right? It's the only process by which we know, come to know truth and falsehood beyond the memory and senses. It crucially depends on a sub-process which is imagination-like, which is based on extrapolation, reading into the world, not reading of it, rather than reason-like. But that doesn't prevent induction retaining its status as part of our reason. Now, relate that back to the earlier stuff. If this is right, okay, that earlier stuff where Hume is kind of, he's trying to say, well, look, within the imagination, I want to draw a distinction, all right? We've got, we've got some principles which are whimsies and prejudices. We've got others which are general and established. Hume is wanting to say that these principles, the ones that underlie induction, are general and established. And they can be counted as part of reason. Now, I think Hume's misled in the treatise because he's, he's using this faculty language of reason and the imagination as though that these are distinct entities. And he's saying, oh, well, if it's attributed to the... To the um, if it can't be attributed to reason, it must be the imagination or vice versa. He's, he's treating them as exclusive. And what I'm suggesting is he's misled by that. He would have been better to think of his faculty language as a way of describing processes rather than giving them a location. So part of our reason involves an imagination-like step. No contradiction in that. Um, in fact, it's probably easier to see in the case of the external world, particularly if you're familiar with um, modern developments in cognitive science, artificial intelligence, and so on. Imagine I see a chair. Or imagine I look at a visual scene and I divide it into objects. How do I do that? Well, the naive view might be that I just read it off the world, okay? I just see it, don't I? I just perceive it. I'm just cognizing. There's nothing creative there. But actually, if you try and write a computer program to identify objects in a visual scene, you will find that you do have to do creative things. That in order to identify objects, what you have to do is things like join the dots, look for edges, extrapolate, fill in gaps. We're doing it all the time. We don't know we're doing it, of course. It's all unconscious. But if you actually try and write a computer program to achieve these things, you find that there are all sorts of constructive operations that you have to do. It isn't just a perceptual operation. You don't just read the identity of objects off the world. And I think if we read Hume as saying something similar to that, that in our cognitive processes, there is a creative step, an imaginative step, as he would call it. There you get a completely reasonable interpretation of his view. And notice that it's not a particularly sceptical view. Now, you might think that it's sceptical. Right? You might naturally, if, if, you've read, if you started off reading Descartes, and Descartes says, well, if you're going to justify anything, you've got to be able to justify it against the you know, the worst uh, sceptical arguments you can find, and anything that's based on anything that can in any way be challenged can itself be challenged. But I think there's an alternative way of seeing this. Hume is saying that we can have a rational process, that is a process of reason, induction, which is founded on a step, namely the extrapolative step, which is not itself a cognitive step which involves reading into the world rather than reading off it. Now, somebody might object to that. They might say, look, isn't it obvious that if, if the, the foundational step on which induction is based is not itself a cognitive step, 
then there's no way that induction can be genuinely cognitive. It's not really a rational process. Okay, so the step that induction's based on got it, has got itself to be a cognitive step. That means any steps that it's based on have themselves to be cognitive steps on this reasoning. And any steps they're based on have to be cognitive steps. Where's this going to stop? How can it possibly stop this regress? You're going to get to the conclusion that the only way you can cognize anything at all is by direct perception of something which is just kind of self-evident. In other words, you're going to be driven to a rationalist position. Or else you're going to say, no, we don't have that kind of direct perception in which case you're going to be totally sceptical. So in fact, I think Hume's position is pretty much the only one you can adopt that is not either totally rationalist or totally sceptical. That ultimately, our cognitive processes are founded on brute facts about the way we work, but are cognitive nonetheless. And the way to get around that, the, you know, if that seems a problem to you, Go and look at Hume's discussion of Descartes' scepticism in Inquiry Section 12, Paragraph 3, where he says, basically, if you reason like Descartes does, if, if you say that everything we do has to be justified from the absolute ground, then you are in total scepticism and there's no way of getting out of it because you can't use your faculties without proving them first to be reliable, and how are you going to prove them reliable except by using your faculties? So if you're not prepared to take our faculties for granted at all, you've had it. Hume's way round is to say, actually, I'm going to take our cognition for granted, but I'm going to look at what it's based on. Oh, look, it's based on this extrapolative step. That doesn't imply that we have to be sceptical about it. And here again we come back to the due contrast in opposition. If we found, find in fact that we can't help believing that the future will resemble the past, and even the sceptic believes that in practice, why should we torture ourselves with trying not to believe it? We've got no reason not to believe it. And this again comes back to things that he was saying in 147 where he was saying, you know, why should we torture ourselves to do this? No, why indeed? All right, so one can raise theoretical doubts about whether the future will resemble the past, but in fact we all believe it. So let's go on and do science on that basis. There's nothing here that prevents us doing science. And only the, the worry of lack of ultimate justification will cause a problem here. If we refuse to be drawn down that seductive line with Descartes, which says everything has to be justified from first principles, we've got no problem. Just very quickly, I'm going to draw an analogy with Hume's discussion of causation. And we've already seen some of this, so I'll just go quite quickly. Um, so th these are slides taken directly from the handouts for Lecture 5, but this is stuff that we didn't have time to go through at the time, and I put in there so that you could look at them uh, for yourselves and so that I could come back to them now. Hume's discussion of causation is very famous, of course. Many people address it as though Hume is engaged in simply conceptual analysis, trying to work out what we mean by cause. He's doing something far more important than that. Uh, if you look later in the treatise to see where he alludes to his discussion of causation, you find the section, sections that we've already looked at today, um, or we, we did in the last lecture, in fact, uh, treatise 145, and the discussion of liberty and necessity. Uh, again, in the inquiry, in section 8 of the inquiry, liberty and necessity, he refers back to his definitions. How does he use his definitions? Well, he uses them to argue that, first of all, matter can be the cause of thought, because causation is just a matter of constant conjunction. So where you've got con constant conjunction, you have causation. Hence, there's no reason why you can't have causation between matter and mind. And in Of Liberty and Necessity, he argues that the doctrine of necessity, that is, um, the application of necessity, determinism, causal determinism, applies as much to the moral world as the physical world. And these arguments depend on the claim that there's nothing to causal necessity but beyond the two definitions. So, Taking liberty and necessity here, as I say, we looked at 145 last time. Um, 
He simply says causation just is a matter of constant conjunction and customary inference. They apply just as much to the moral realm as the physical realm, therefore the moral realm is causally governed. And there's a passage there from the abstract in which Hume um, is making precisely uh, that point. So Hume makes clear that his definitions of causation enable him to draw quite substantial conclusions about the application of causation to the moral world, both that matter can cause thought and that human behaviour can be causally explained. Notice these are positive claims. They're claims that support moral science. They, they are not sceptical claims. Um, here we get passage from 145. Uh, we saw a companion passage to this last time. But, but look at this. There's an import, the word only is inserted. All objects which are found to be constantly conjoined are upon that account only to be regarded as causes and effects. The constant conjunction of objects constitutes the very essence of cause and effect. Two particulars are essential to necessity, viz. the constant union and the inference of the mind. Wherever we discover these, we must acknowledge a necessity. Okay, so here's the final twist. Hume's discussion of causation is often seen to be sceptical. Why? Because it's denying a kind of necessity or causal necessity that some people thought there ought to be. Is it really sceptical? No, it's not. It's not really sceptical because what Hume is doing is defining causation in such a way that we can know it applies. We can know it applies to the moral world. So if you understand causal necessity as Hume says we should understand it, the conclusion is not a sceptical one, it's actually pro-science. We can apply science to the moral world because all we need to do is look for constant conjunction. That's it. That's enough for causation. So now let's go on and do moral science. And Hume, in his later writings, does lots of it. You know, economics, political theory, uh, about the passions, about morality, about uh, aesthetics. No contradiction there at all. Now, look at, now think about Hume's discussion of induction in the same light. Again, you can, you can see it as sceptical because he's not, he's not accounting for induction in terms of some ultimate insight. No, but what is he doing? He's saying induction is just fine based on our animal nature, our expectation that the future will resemble the past. That's fine. So actually, he's defining reason in such a way that we do actually have it. It is as we find it, and that's not a problem. And we can go on and do moral science using it. So whether you think of Hume as a skeptic or not, crucially depends on what you see his ambition as being. Certainly in the treatise, you get an awful lot of scepticism, and it's not resolved. We don't get a satisfactory solution, because his own arguments seem to lead to contradictions. In the inquiry, you don't get that. You get a much more um, harmonious and settled position. Um, if you want to read more on these, I've just put... The first article is quite a short one. It's written for a student magazine, and it, it kind of explains... gives this take on, on Hume on induction. Uh, the second one, as you see, is much longer and discusses the, the stuff on induction in much more detail from the same perspective. And, and this is an article on causation, um, where the, the first section in particular um, so kind of sketches out this, this uh, vision of, of what Hume is up to. Well, that's it. I hope you've enjoyed these lectures. Thank you very much for coming along and uh, good luck in the rest of your work on Hume.